Amen. Well, good morning, everyone. How's everybody doing today? Hanging in there? Praise God. Well, this is the day that the Lord has made. And we will rejoice and be glad in it. Can you say amen? Hallelujah. You know, one of the things that faith uh, demonstrates, it demonstrates a belief in what is not yet seen. It calls those things which are not as though they are. And though the world around us does not know God, cannot see God, does not understand God, we have seen him, howbeit with the eye of faith, and we believe, I believe, and if you believe, the Bible says, if you believe, your mouth will speak certain things, your mouth will articulate certain things to be true. And what that is, is the release of the living water. Out of the innermost being, rivers of living water. And this is the privilege that those who believe have. So I want to invite you this morning to open your mouth and to worship God and to declare and to create an atmosphere in here where God can sit upon our praises. God can nest upon the faith that is released from us, that God can take that faith and do something in the earth with it. So, Father, we want to say we believe. We believe that every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. We declare today you are true. We declare today that Jesus Christ is the Son of God. We declare today that Jesus Christ died and was buried and rose again on the third day. We declare today that Jesus is the resurrection and the life and that he will judge the nations. Great is your name, faithful, faithful one. Amen. Let's worship him. It's really impressing me about the pool of Bethesda. And I want to talk about that man who laid there for 38 years, hoping that someone would come along and put him into the water. And suddenly Jesus is there. And you know, Jesus never even puts him into the water. He never even has to get into the water. Jesus just has to speak over him. Jesus says over him, rise up and walk. And without ever going into the water, the thing he'd been waiting for for 38 years was for someone to put him into the water. But without ever going into the water, he walks away 100% whole. And I want to say this morning that you think that 38 years is a long time, and you've given up, and you think there could not possibly a way, uh, be a way that I could walk away from this affliction that I'm under. But this could be that day when Jesus steps close to you and says, rise up and walk. 
and I declare faith over this place. I declare faith over this place. The faith that Jesus could suddenly appear and step close to you and say into your situation, rise up and walk. We say there is healing for physical bodies. We say there is healing for relationships. We say there is healing for impossible situations. Lord, come down and draw near to us today. Step close to us today, we pray. Do you know, as New Testament Christians, we, we've taken something for granted. But the most revolutionary idea of our faith is this. It is that... God is a loving God. That revelation, when you see it in the Psalms, was a complete reversal of the mindset of what the people had seen and what they had felt and what they thought they were under. They thought they were under a punitive, vindictive, angry God because that's all they ever saw. They ever, all they ever saw was punishment. All they ever saw was, was the, the wrath of God poured out on sin. But it took a man named Moses who believed that there's something approachable here. Everything he saw made, made him terrified, made Israel terrified. But he believed, he believed that there's something in God's glory that was approachable. That was a novice, that, I mean, that was a revolutionary idea. Because if you touched God, you died. If you came close to God, you died. Those were the rules. Those were the, that was the only rules they knew. And it wasn't until he took that step of faith and said, God, I want to see your glory, that he crossed that threshold to the appearance of God into the heart of God. And there, in that secret place, God began to declare who he really was. And that's where he said, I'm long-suffering, I'm merciful, I'm forgiving. All those things we, we think, oh, this, yeah, this is who God is. I'm telling you. It took faith, it took faith to press past the appearance of a punitive, harsh God before they ta anybody tasted that God was loving. And today that same thing exists in our society. People, they abhor the idea of an angry God, the abhor idea of a God that judges, of a God that has standards. And so the only way we can believe that God is a loving God is if we strip him of all the things that are actually who, what he is. But he will not be found by a people who strip him of his attributes, but a people who know his holiness, but who say, but at his core, he is love. And I will press into who he really is. So, Father, I pray today, I pray today that we will not diminish you. We will not diminish your glory. We will not diminish your power. We will not diminish your holiness. We will not diminish your righteousness. But, Father, we will believe that at the core, at the core of all these demands of holiness and righteousness, that there is love. There is love. That God is good. That a righteous, holy God, a righteous, holy God that killed and destroyed nations and judged peoples, that you are a good God. That a God that says, Jacob have I loved, Esau have I hated, that that is a loving God. 
then the God we know with standards is a loving God. Let faith arise. Then it will enable us to grasp you in your fullness. You are a good God. As we're standing here in this atmosphere, I want to read some passages from Hebrews 11, which is the, the chapter of faith. Because whether we know it or not, the thing that God is after here is to increase our faith. And I want to read something that we so often overlook, and I could read the whole chapter, but I'll just try and cut down some of the things that maybe jump from, from uh, verse to verse. But basically it starts by saying this, Now faith is the substance of things hoped for, the evidence of things not seen. For by it the elders obtain a good testimony. By faith Abel offered to God a more excellent sacrifice than Cain, through which he obtained witness that he was righteous. By faith Enoch was taken away so that he did not see death. By faith, by faith he did these things. And it says without faith it's impossible to please God. Faith is what pleases God. But without faith, it's impossible to please him. For he who comes to God must believe he is a rewarder, he, that he is, and that he is a rewarder of those who diligently seek him. By faith, Noah, being divinely warned of things not yet seen, moved with godly fear, prepared an ark. By faith, Abraham obeyed. By faith, Abraham dwelt in the land of promises in a foreign country, waiting, dwelling like a stranger in a tent, waiting. He waited for a city whose foundations and whose builder was God. By faith, Sarah conceived. Wow. These, these all died in faith, not having received the promises, but having seen them afar. It says, by faith, Abraham, when he was tested, offered up Isaac. By faith, Isaac blessed Jacob and Esau concerning things to come. By faith, Jacob, when he was dying, blessed each of the sons of Joseph. By faith, Moses was hidden for three months. By faith, Moses, when he became of age, refused to be called the son of Pharaoh, choosing rather to suffer affliction. By faith, he forsook Egypt. By faith, he kept the Passover. By faith, they passed through the Red Sea as on dry land. By faith, the walls of Jericho fell down. By faith, the harlot Rahab did not perish. And what more shall I say? For the time would fail me to tell of Gideon and Barak and Samson and Jephthah, also David and Samuel and the prophets, who through faith subdued kingdoms, worked righteousness, obtained promises, stopped the mouths of lions, quenched the violence of fire, escaped the edge of the sword, out of weakness were made strong, became valiant in battle, turned the fight 
turned to flight the, air, the air, armies of the aliens. Women received their dead, raised to life again. All these things were achieved by faith. But you know what else? You know what was equally done by faith? Let me read to you what was equally done by faith. Others were tortured by faith, not accepting deliverance, that they might obtain a better resurrection. Others had trials of mockings and scourgings, yes, and of chains of imprisonment. Do you know how they did that? By faith. By faith they were stoned, they were sawn in two, they were tempted, they were slain by the sword. They wandered about in sheepskin and goatskins, being destitute, afflicted, tormented, of whom the world was not worthy. They wandered in deserts and mountains and dens and caves of the earth. All these, having obtained a good testimony through faith, did not receive the promise. The measure of the faith that we have is not necessarily victory. The measure of the faith we have is the capacity to believe no matter what. And in some cases, that brings, that snatches death, snatches us out of death. It snatches us out of loss, out of devastation. But other times, it means standing in the midst of destruction, not receiving salvation, believing that this life is well worth being sacrificed for a life that's eternal. That is faith. Faith is able to look beyond the timeline of this present realm. And there will be those who will be snatched from the mouths of lions, and there are those who will be sawn asunder. It's happening today. Faith is not necessarily visible victory. It is a confidence that no matter what happens, I serve a living God and that the continuum of my existence will not stop at my death but continues that this is a beginning and not an end. That's faith. Now, we've been privileged to live in a culture for forever that celebrates our faith, that is disposed to our perspective, to our point of view about who God is. We've been privileged to be raised in a, in a world that agrees with us concerning freedoms of worship, concerning morality, concerning who God is and who God is not. But the rest of the world has not shared that privilege. And we are living in a world that may not share that conviction either. Faith has the courage to stand no matter what. And so the question is, are we a people that believe or not? Is God who he says he is or not? Because God is looking for a people in this day and age to turn this ship that is the Western culture back to its foundations, back to its moorings. But it takes a stand of courage that believes he's a loving God. But you know what? If you have to eliminate half of the Bible to maintain the conviction that he's a loving God, then you are diminishing the knowledge of him. 
if it helps us believe that God is loving, to believe that wasn't him that judged the nations in the Old Testament, they were serving the wrong God because it was him that judged the nations, and it's him that will judge sin. So, Father, I pray today that like the doctor who amputates that gangrenous limb in order to save the body, we will see every judgment as righteous. That we will see every, everything you do within the nations, everything that you do to cut off sin, to cut off unrighteousness, to cut off hatred, that this is indeed a loving act of a righteous, kind, and long-suffering God. And whether we, like children, don't understand why mom and dad are so mean that they won't let us eat uh, 10 pounds of fudge, Father, we believe that you are superior in your knowledge, that you are superior, and that at the heart of everything you do is love. We believe that everything you do is motivated by love. We believe everything you do in your chastening of us in our lives right now, in what you permit and what you do not permit, and what you allow and what you hold back. Lord, you are motivated by our, our best interests, that you know the good that you've envisioned for us. You know the plans that you have for us. And we declare today that we believe that you are a good God. Come on, can we believe that he is a good God? Lord, in the hardships that come our way, in the blessings that come our way, we declare that you are a good God. And whether it take 30, takes 38 years for that miracle to come or whether it comes on day one, we say, you are a good God. And whether the trials of my life disappear today or remain for another five years, we declare we are unmoved. You are a good God. You are a good God. You never change. You are the same yesterday, today, and forever. I want to emphasize one last thing before we shift this morning. Is that chapter 12 that follows chapter 11 means that everything that he says at the beginning of chapter 12 is reinforced by chapter 11. And what he's doing, he's writing to believers of his day. He's saying to them, listen, this is what God is doing in your life. This is the purpose for these things. He's saying categorically, whether this happens or this happens, you can be in faith and either of them happen. Because what he's really about is doing chapter 12. And what chapter 12 is about is the discipline of God. And, and let me just sum it up for you. He said the chastening of God will make you a partaker of the holiness of God. And knowing the love of God is what enables you to endure the chastening of God. But everything he's written there is because the people were fainting because the outcomes they thought were supposed to happen were not happening. And I know that everybody in this place, if you've been a Christian for more than a month, you've realized that, you know, you didn't step into utopia. 
Why? Because it's not about utopia, nor is it about suffering. It's about the impartation of a nature that is godlike. And when God chastens you like we chasten our children, it is to bring forth character, to bring forth an image, to bring forth a behavior that's rooted, in the case of God, in a transformation. So I want to declare today that, Father, we say that you are a loving God. And whatever doubts we've had about the journey, whatever doubts we've had about the scenarios, the circumstances of our lives, we want to put those to rest today by faith. And we want to say that, God, you work all things together for good to those who are called according to your purpose. And I pray that today the kind of faith... God, whether we're thinking about our jobs, whether we're thinking about the circumstances of issues with children, what we hoped for in the, in the dreams we had about what marriage was going to be, what our careers were going to be, what our children were going to be, we lay it all down to say, God, you are good. Your mercy endures forever. You are a faithful God. And you are changing me through the circumstances of my life. Can we say amen? Amen. Hallelujah. All right, just one, just one thing on, on where we've just been here. Um, I, a couple of weeks ago, I saw a little video on YouTube, and it was... Uh, one of the archbishops um, from the Anglican Church, and he was being asked, he was in a university being interviewed, and, and the interviewer said to him right away, he said, so here's the question. It, what? Okay. If there's, a, if there's a loving God, right, how come there's so much suffering, so much pain in the world? And the archbishop said, you know, that's interesting because on my way in here today, I was asked that very question at least three times by students within this university. This is the big question that I get asked all the time. If God is a loving God, then how can the world be such a mess? And how does he allow it? And he said, and, and, and I thought this was utterly brilliant, okay? He said... I'm not sure that I have a great answer for the question, but let me, let me bring you to the book of Job in the Bible. And in the book of Job, Job is going through all of this stuff, and, and you know, his friends are saying, well, look, you brought it on yourself. You've got to be doing something. In order for you to have this kind of trouble in your life, you've got to be messed up somehow. You've got to be in sin. You've got to be selfish. You've got to be, you know, whatever, whatever, whatever. And Job's going, no, 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 that's not it. And then he says, I wish that God would speak to me because in a court of law, I could defend myself right now. I, I could give my defense to God, and I wish he would answer it. Okay? So this is Job. He's, he's so sure that he hasn't brought this on himself, and he's so sure it's unfair. Now, remember, this is the art the Archbishop, I think, of Canterbury. I'm not sure. He wasn't wearing something real significant. But anyway. Um, 
And then he said, and then God showed up and declined to answer any of Job's questions at all. And Job went, oh, never mind. I have no questions. God showed up and said, I'm God. And Job said, oh, and it was settled. Did you notice that? No questions answered because when God showed up and Job saw God, the questions were gone. So really what we want is a revelation of God and then the questions are gone. Now, uh, that's a powerful thing. Come and go join us, Katie. Now, <clears throat> we're going we're gonna to open up an opportunity for different ones to share. And, uh, of course, Bethany and Curtis were there, too, uh, so they, they may have something to, to share at some point, but we'll start with us five. About this Job thing, let me just say this. One of the, um, one of the significance of the book of Job is that, and again, we, we come from a New Testament mindset, and we take certain things for granted. The orientation around the heart as the vehicle for righteousness was not existent in Job's day. Okay? What they measured righteousness by was solely by what you did or did not do. There was no concept of iniquity or what you did in your thoughts or the hidden impulses of the heart. That was not on the... All they had, all righteousness was, was what you did or what you did not do. And so when they, when they were suggesting to Job, you know, maybe you've got a little mistress on the side, you know, and you just tell, didn't tell anybody. Maybe you've been, you know, beating your, you know, and stealing, and, you know, you didn't say anything. You know, these things will find you out. And that's why he, he could have been, he was adamant in saying, no, I have done, this is not fair. What happened, though, when God comes up, there was a quantum leap in his understanding of what God was after. That's what God does when he comes into your life. Just when you think you've categorically begun to understand righteousness. Even when you begin to understand, no, I have a good heart or God has done this thing in my heart. What the glory of God does is it goes to layers you've never before conceived of. And so we've done, in many respects, what what, what uh, Job did is we proclaim our righteousness because, well, I have a good heart. I, I, I have these great impulses until God shows up and shows you the impulses below the impulses. Then you say, like everybody else who sees God, woe am I. And that's not a bad thing. That's a great thing. And so I always find it interesting when people say, I, I hate having to come to that point of saying, woe am I. We need to get used to it because the layers of his righteousness are beyond description. And each one you discover, you will say, woe am I, and it won't stop. So our confidence and ability to draw near to him is not because we're doing great. It's because he's love and he's made a way. So that's the journey we're on. So thanks, Job, for starting the ball rolling there getting it kicked off. 
<laughs> and uh, and we just pray that we could uh, discover, God, your righteousness. Seek your first, his righteousness, right? And the kingdom. What is his righteousness? It's that thing that runs you through, the sword of his word. So let it be. Amen. All right. So we were, uh, I know you guys can share, Mike. I hope you're okay with that. Um, is it on? All right. So we uh, were part of the uh, several thousand people that were in Israel. And we've come away with a few experiences, a few moments, some of them carnal uh, in terms of food, in terms of uh, seeing, you know, the sights of Israel, Jerusalem. How many of you saw some Facebook uh, or WhatsApp videos and whatnot? Isn't that that uh, aqueduct in Caesarea was pretty pretty stunning piece of archaeology that's uh, for there to see. But I mean, it's phenomenal just the history to be in the land and realize that these are the streets where Jesus walked. But beyond that, there was some kingdom things that were transpiring, and we all have some different thoughts. So I'm going to start with Jim on the end, and you know maybe he'll uh, as he shares something, we may all interject and. And, uh, you know, pile on. But uh, go ahead, Jim. Two things uh, that kind of hit me about just being there in the land. The, f the first thing was where we were staying uh, for the first week during the gathering. We were staying at a hotel uh, which, whose name was Yerim, the Yerim Hotel. And somehow, you know, that never made any impression on me whatsoever when we were booked into it or anything. And then we began driving up the, the mountain in the bus to get to the hotel, and it was Kiryat Yerim. And then we realized, somebody said something, and it was Kiryat Jerim is the way the King James spells that word, which was the location that the Ark of the Covenant spent 20 years at after the Philistines sent it back into the land of Israel. So... You know, it was, it was an, a really interesting thing to realize we are in the Yerim, the Jerem Hotel at the top of this hill, which is where for 20 years the Ark of the Covenant, the, the place where God, uh, you know, manifested his Shekinah glory, um, rested for 20 years. And it was kind of, kind of wow, right on this hill. This is, this is very cool. Okay. And, and the second time I had that same sort of impression was when we were at the Western Wall. And I just put my hand against the, the, or the, also known as the Wailing Wall, put my hand against it and realized again, I'm within about 100 feet here of Solomon's Temple where the Shekinah glory of God manifested for years, visibly, tangibly, right? And you're standing there and you're thinking, wow, this, this area... This piece of land matters to God. Um, when we did, it, we did a tour, and we saw the, the original city of David, and that's when it became clear to me just, just how much this little piece of land actually does matter to God because the first thing we hear about that land is, is that the first little city, and, and when David took, took Jerusalem as his, it was tiny, tiny, 1,500 people maybe lived there in this little city called Salem which was run by the Jebusites. Salem, as in the king of Salem, was a guy named Melchizedek, who 
Abraham tithed to before he even received the promise. Melchizedek had his, and he was a prophet of the Most High God. God's prophet lived on that hill before the people of Israel were even a people. So it's just an interesting thing to recognize. So anyway, that was the first thing, was geography. But now let me move on to the, the, the gathering. The thing that was stunning to me in the gathering, particularly even the pre-gathering sessions that we got to be part of with only about 400 people, was the level of faith in the room and then what is possible when that kind of faith is in operation um, and the agreement. In that room, there were declarations made pulling down principalities and powers over things like ISIS. Now, it's funny, I said to Mark and I said to Gaylene even at the time, if somebody in our church here took the microphone and began to make the kinds of declarations that were being made there, I personally would run up and take the mic away from them. I, I would tackle them. I'm serious. You do not mess with things that you do not have the authority to mess with. Jesus has the authority, but we don't necessarily walk in the full authority of Jesus. Last time I checked, my shadow hadn't healed anybody. Okay, there's a, there's a level of authority that is beyond that which most of us walk in most of the time. We know it's there, and I think it's still accessible, but there's a piece of agreement that comes in, etc. So in that room, at that time, it was completely reasonable. It was completely within the authority that was available with the faith that was in operation in the room to be calling down ISIS, to be calling down principalities and powers over the Middle East. And the same way when we got together in the larger group and began to pray over the U.S. election the one night, on the Monday night, we prayed over the U.S. election just that God's will would be done. But the declarations that were made were absolutely significant. Absolutely significant. And when it was done, there was such a sense of closure. Oh, that was actually on the Sunday night. Um, that that happened. There was such a sense of closure in it. We didn't even bring it back up, and the election wasn't until Tuesday. But it was done. It was clear in the spirit. So, again, and the level of faith in the room allowed that to be something where we realized our part, whatever our part was, as a group of 4,000 or so people, was complete. Um, amazing. Like, just amazing that that level of faith uh, carries that kind of authority. Just as a sidebar, um, Curtis, <laughs> Curtis took a video of that repentance and posted it, as did Kathy Pelton from her computer screen in, uh, in Portland, Oregon. And Curtis ended up getting uh, almost 400,000 uh, views and 10,000, over 10,000 shares. On, on his thing, like that thing went viral. Same with Kathy Pelton, she was, last time I looked, over 450,000 views on, on her. So, you know, it was interesting. I, I didn't even know, like, what kind of kinetic energy, you know, would cause that kind of, you know, because it's still just a post that somebody's making, but it sort of grabbed. So it was really powerful, you could, and, and the level of faith in the room, and the level of prayer and the desperation, if you haven't seen it, 
go and look at that because, again, besides the fact that it was significant for the moment, it, it, uh, it, 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 it can stir in us uh, or even provide a paradigm of what prayer could and should look like when we're really pouring ourselves into an issue. And again, part of what we're trying to do in, the, you know, in, in all of this, we want to feed into how we're discipling and how we're moving the church, that we want to be people who can intercede and pray and declare and walk in faith in the way, or in a similar way, that key global leaders are doing right now who are at the forefront of the kingdom of God in the world. So there should be a trickle down at some point in terms of forms, in terms of values, in terms of behaviors that we want to grab from this. So I encourage you to look at some of these things, if, no, if for no other reason than just to get it in your mind that these expressions are not abnormal for church. It's hard to uh, actually limit what to say. Um, I'd have to agree with Jim, just seeing the landscape um, made me realize how presumptuous I was every time I taught the Bible. <laughs> it's like, oh, I didn't know anything. Uh, so that was kind of shocking uh, because we just don't have a concept of what it was like. And uh, uh, yeah, so I'm going to be seeking the Lord a little bit more every time I teach. But um, I think I'm going to start at the end of the gathering uh, the very last day was just a, a day of honoring, a day of um, uh, just to, just realizing how th they didn't, they, they said how we don't think of, you know, various people as volunteers. We don't think of uh, these people are working and doing these. It, like everybody's just part of the family. And I think God is in the process of shifting my mindset of what family really means in the kingdom of God. Um, I think we're going to be so limited in what we can tell you, but I probably could speak for any one of us to say, if you want to hear more, we're absolutely open to sharing more with you about what happened uh, at that time. And one of, the, one of the, what we might call a volunteers, but one of the family members, uh, a lady who was very administratively gifted, just shared a thought. It's like, come with the fullness of who you are, and do what you're called to do. And it all fits together, and we all belong. So I thought that was really huge, even though it was a really simple little thing that she said. Um, I don't know what, I, I feel like I'm going to stomp on what other people are going to say because there's so many things to, to share, but uh, I'll start at the beginning then, or I'll go back to the beginning. Um, there was a delegate, uh, delegation of of chiefs from the Polynesian islands, Samoa and Hawaii, and uh, they said that their oral tradition was that they actually came from the Middle East, and they paddled their boats off to the islands, and, and this has gone from generation to generation to generation, and they came back to this area of Israel so that their Israeli and Palestinian brothers would be united. And what we actually were able to witness in Germany, which we thought was way up there, wow, I never thought I'd see this ever, the um, children of Israel and the children of Ishmael uh, agreeing to walk together and honor each other, 
that became the floor for what happened now <laughs> at this gathering where it's like, we're, it's not just that we're honoring each other, we're actually going to choose to trust each other. And we're actually going to make a covenant with each other. We will lay down our lives to see your nation, each of them were saying this to each other, to see your nation fulfill its destiny. So it was, it was huge. I think every time I go to a gathering, I, I get really intrigued by what the nations are called to. And of course, Canada, I just want to encourage us as Canadians, we have the opportunity to press in for the healing of the nations. In fact, we had an opportunity to talk to one of the Chinese pastors, and he said, thank you so much for being Canadian and for what you're doing. What you've prayed for, what you've called into being has affected us as a nation. And so I want to encourage us to just continue to do that, to pray for the healing of each nation. Israel, um, particularly the, the children of, of Israel, um, they just want to crown their king. They shared that with us. We want to crown a king. We're waiting for Messiah so we can crown him king. So as we pray for the healing of that region and that nation, it is going to open the door for our king to return. I think just to add one thing, one of the things that came, came out very clearly from the Messianic Jewish leaders was this statement that Abraham blessed Ishmael before he blessed Isaac. I mean, Ishmael was 14 years older than Isaac, right? And their comment was that until Ishmael receives his blessing, Isaac can't receive his. And so the Messianic Jewish leaders are saying until the Arabs come into the fullness of their blessing and their destiny, the Jews won't. And uh, from a Jewish perspective, a Jew declaring that over the Arabs very, very, very significant. Yeah, I, let me just comment on that because that is sort of the, the center point of what's happening uh, right now. You know, it says, uh, Paul talks about that the Gentile will provoke the Jew to jealousy. And, uh, you know, in the original version of this, when, when Isaac was born and he became the child of promise, basically what happened was Ishmael was displaced. Ishmael was set aside. For 14 years, he, his mom, uh, and his, his dad and stepmom all believed he was the child of promise until Isaac was born and then Ishmael's Passover in favor of, of Isaac. So Isaac is now, the, the covenant is with Isaac and Ishmael is out. What would provoke Isaac to jealousy more than God turning the tables and suddenly saying, Ishmael walking in the statutes and the blessing of the covenant and Isaac not. It's a reversal and that's how, that's how God has destined this thing, this full circle thing where, where at the end it's going to be the Arab, uh, the, the Ishmael, the, you know, and the Egyptians, you know, because Hagar was an Egyptian. The mother of Ishmael was an Egyptian. And so uh, what will provoke Israel to full jealousy is when they see that the evidence of the covenant is on the one that was formerly displaced by him. And this is the wisdom of God at work in this thing. And it's all for the purpose of bringing us all to God in, under the covenant that he's given us. It's powerful. Yeah, 
being at the gathering was um, once again really um, beautiful to watch the level of faith that comes into a room when that many people come together in agreement. And it was phenomenal. And I have to echo with uh, what Gaylene said to watch um, the Arab and the Jew come together and repent to one another and come to walk together and want the best for the other person was humbling to watch and a level of faith in the room for that was huge. And then we leave the gathering, we go around Israel and we realize how little I knew about how huge that step was because of the animosity in the land. And we knew this and they were making it like it. But the Arabs and the Jews knew the animosity in the land that they were coming up against. And my eyes opened as we traveled and there was the areas of restriction that people, so people could go and, and certain people couldn't and like, this is what they're coming up with and this is what they had faith for. It was so huge. And as I kept dwelling on that, the uh, part of my heart that keeps on coming back to me is the fact that we have to strive for peace. And relationship. There is a price to be paid to lay down your life and not cling to uh, hurt, to not cling to uh, openness, and um, to choose forgiveness and love and friendship and family. And it was just so evident um, the consequence of not taking those choices. It just is no oddity and how valuable. Um, how about covers? Yes. How about covers? So I'll just talk about the family part. So I would estimate there were about 5,000 people at the gathering. You know, 1,500 Chinese or more, several hundred Germans, people from all over the world. And sitting in an arena and feeling like, wow, I have 5,000 family members. Yeah. And many of them I can't actually talk to other than playing charades. <laughs> It was stunning, though, because it isn't just an idea of, oh, that's family. It's, no, this is actually family. It is. Strangers who didn't speak my language hugged me. That sort of level of, like, not just friendly, you know, it's like, oh, nice to meet you, hug, hug, pat, pat, never see you again. Like, family. Mm -hmm. And there was a number of times that what was stated was, because the family is together across many nations, we have authority to address this. We are the United Nations addressing. And it, the authority that comes from family was what shifted everything. And they made sure that we understood that. Someone at one point got up and said, listen, if people are oriented around a vision, when the vision is done, the people scatter. But if it's family first, you can get something done and then still be family. Yeah. And when the next assignment comes, you rally. Yeah. And so if anything that I want to bring back and release to here is we are family. Each one matters. Each one has gifting. Each one has calling. Each one has the ability to serve. Each one has a capacity to love. And our challenge is, can we open our hearts even wider to accept and love more people to invest ourselves in, in you know, one another in the room that we haven't met yet in a greater way because we're seeing the results. You know, one of the things that just 
blew my mind was related to the, the, the Arab and the Jew side by side. One of the premier you know, Arab or Jewish leaders, picture this vulnerability, he looks at one of the lead Arab leaders and says, my people have a destiny and it's too big for us. We need you to come in, we're in over our heads. We need you to accomplish your purpose and help us. Can you imagine a Jew saying that to an Arab? Just, and exactly the other end, the Arabs that are humbling themselves and saying, we were jealous that after 13 years of being the chosen one, and it was yanked away, we were jealous, we were angry, we were bitter, we sought to pull you down, we were wrong. We need you to accomplish the will of God. We need you to be the firstborn son, the, the blessed one. They don't suck God. But in the context of family, when you can bring the walls down, when you can let your heart be exposed, when you can risk, these are the things that change. There was a, a prophetic act done that was pretty uh, intense where a, uh, a Jewish woman took on the, the role of Sarah and one of the Arab women took on the role of Hagar and they actually did a, a repentance back and forth um, and a foot washing in fact um, back and forth and the declaration um, to say because I, again how many here feel like you're pretty familiar with the story of Sarah and Hagar? Okay, quite a few, but not everybody. So, so to, to just clearly understand what happened here, Abraham had a promise, right? That he was going to be the father of many nations. But he's getting old. And his wife, Sarah, is now menopausal. She's beyond childbearing. But very beautiful. And, but very beautiful, yes. Because <laughs> um, the older you get, the better you look. <laughs> And, uh, and so Sarah takes it into her own hands to make sure that this promise will be fulfilled. So she goes off and she says to Abraham, well, look, we got to make this thing happen. So here, why don't you take my slave girl, Hagar, this Egyptian girl, and why don't you produce the son that you need so that you can be the father of many nations? And so Abraham goes, yeah, whatever, sure. So Abraham takes Hagar. Sure enough, she gets pregnant, and she has Ishmael. Now, as soon as Hagar gets pregnant, she begins to lord it over Sarah. Okay? Nah, 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 nah. See, I'm a real woman, and you're not. I can bear children, and you're barren. Sarah does not appreciate this greatly. And so she begins to be very, very mean to Hagar, like really mean, beating the whole works. So Hagar runs away. Hagar, the name means to flee. That's her name. This is very, very important because names have meaning. So her name is to flee. So she runs away. Now, as she runs away, God kind of arrests her, 
sends her back. She comes back. I think she's probably less arrogant now because Sarah doesn't, you know, continue to treat her quite as badly. And she has this baby, Ishmael. And Ishmael is now the fulfillment of the promise as far as they know. And has now basically been adopted by Sarah as her son. And Abraham, it's his son. So this is whom he loves. This is the one he's going to give everything to. This is the one. Right? This is the one that matters. And then God comes in and says, well, no, actually, Sarah is going to conceive. And Sarah laughs and then says she didn't and all of this, right? But in the end, she does. She conceives. She's 100. She's 99. She conceives a child, has this baby. The second Isaac's born, though, where's her focus? Isaac, 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 Isaac. And then Ishmael, being, you know, a 14-year-old boy, he's got this little, or now 16-year-old boy, he's got this little two-year-old playing around him. He's a little rude to the little tyke. Plus, I think he understands that his role here is a little bit teetery, right? So he's, he's kind of mean to the little tyke. Sarah sees this. That's it. Send him away. And again, they flee, okay? So just so you understand, this whole Middle East conflict that we're seeing is a family spat between, really, Sarah and Hagar from, from 4,000 years ago. That's, that's really the deal that we're still... Let's put that into context. The greatest historical feud involving warring nations was started by two women. <laughs> I just, you know, I've heard things to the contrary from certain feminist voices, so, you know, yeah. I just want to make that clear. <laughs> that women can be as divisive as men. Yeah. Um, Bethany, uh, you, you had shared something about family, about the atmosphere. Can you come in and maybe, sh uh, I'm putting you on the spot, I know, but I felt that was significant uh, about what you encountered in terms of your interactions. Can you share something? Um, I'm 17. I'm one of the uh, youngest people there. Um, and. I was, uh, I was surrounded by people that I couldn't necessarily talk to, who I didn't know, who you know came up, hugged me, and I trusted, I loved, I have never felt more connected to people in my life. I've had a history of wanting to close myself off, of thinking, people suck. Why would I want to be with people? And without a second thought, suddenly surrounded by loved ones. I love them, they love me. Um, you know, through various times throughout the gathering where, uh, you know, maybe a little bit outside of my comfort zone and I'm surrounded by moms and sisters who, you know, will make room for me, will, you know, stand with me, will pray with me, will, you know, dance with me for hours as we're praying and it was family. So I had a bit of a unique experience um, in that this is the sort of the third gathering, global gathering in a row that I've been involved with. The first of those being a sort of um, preparatory gathering in Edmonton before the Munich gathering last year. Um, and at that, there was sort of a contingency of the younger generation, the millennials, which technically I'm still part of, um, who were all gathering together. And Jesse had really challenged me at the time as like, you need to, you need to go and like be with these people and make start making connections. I, was like, ah, I don't really, 
I don't think so, necessarily. Um, so I went to one thing, and I had judgments and judgments, and was like, I, I don't really want to do this. Um, we heard about it. Yeah. <laughs> and... Uh, and it was just kind of like judging for lack of maturity and all kinds of weird stuff that are, it was, it was a total distraction. So then in Munich, decided to somewhat begrudgingly as well, get over some of that and actually make connections. So as we were coming for this gathering, one of the things that was interesting for me, because I was actually really excited to see these friends that I had made from the previous gathering from a year ago that I haven't seen for a year, I, I was totally stoked to see them. So from this perspective, then, I had a, a different experience because there were a couple of opportunities for that group to get together again and for the larger group of sort of, you know, let's say 30 and unders to, to get together and uh, have times of worship. There was a thing, the very, very first thing that I ever did was like before the pre-gathering, there was a group of young people. Um, and it was through this where... God kind of revealed something to me that it, it took kind of this long for this to just become so obvious, is that I've had a very bubble mentality when it comes to um, the church, the global church, is that I'm like, I go to Spruce Grove Community Church, we are pressing in to prophetic and worship and intercession, and that is what we do. And we're going to do that, and we're going to accomplish the things that we need to accomplish, and there's going to be, you know, hundreds or thousands of churches around the globe that are also going to be doing that, and, and we're going to accomplish the purposes that God has for us, and somehow God is going to tie that all together, and it's going to be great. And that's true. What I didn't realize until this gathering is that the way that God is going to tie that together is actually through us legitimately. And never before have I had such a heart for the global church where I realized it is actually the church, the people of the church making connections internationally that is how God is going to accomplish his purposes throughout the entire earth is that Yes, we're all going to be, there are pockets, but those pockets have to be connected as well. Um, so the, the difficult part was that coming back from this, I don't specifically have a practical exhortation to say this is what we have to do in order to achieve this. But my hope is that that heart that I caught there could, be, could also be caught by this body as well and, and by the global church at large. Um, and just to give a picture of some of that family, if I may, um, there was sort of a series of three different sessions where on the, the Tuesday night was the most amazing time of worship that I've had probably in 13 years. Like I was, I love the worship in this body. And yet like we were looking back, it's like, when was the last time that this, this happened? Um, Chuck Pierce's worship leader happened to just join everyone on stage. He is black and has that like black soul kind of thing. And just, just like, whoa, crazy party and declaring and just like tearing down principalities. It was warfare. It was celebration. It was all of those things joined together. Um, I was sweating a lot. And it was amazing. So then the next morning, it's like, okay, God, what are you going to do next? And we get into the building, and there on stage, there's a couch, and there's a bunch of pillows all over the stage. Um, on the main floor area, they had sort of a floor like this. Um, 
that was very open for people to like you know jump and dance and all that kind of stuff. It had these like sheets of paper that made this big plus uh, across the entire floor. I'm like, what is going on? And effectively, um, we had living room time. The, a stadium full of like 5,000 people, and they had um, Graham Kendrick, who was the guy who wrote Shine, Jesus, Shine. He happened to be there, and so he was sitting there on the couch. He led us all. We sang Shine, Jesus, Shine in all the various languages that there were, and we're just kind of hanging out there. And of all of the things that happened in the gathering, this was potentially the most challenging for me because I love what worship kind of looks like in the Literally, Western world. Yeah. Yeah, and the whole like I say we sang in every single language. They actually had kids on stage who were leading the the song in all those languages and it was it was so amazing and it was so strange. But um <laughs> there, so I'm sitting there I'm like I don't know how to press into this exactly and yet with this like intense understanding that this is crucially important is this understanding of family. And I truly believe that what had happened in terms of the breakthrough of all of us participating in the breakthrough paved the way for what happened that morning. Then that evening, the sound system in the building... Now, you have to understand, this. we were in the basketball arena for, for in Jerusalem. It's a fairly new building. It's only about two years old. The sound system is one of the best that you can buy on the market. It's a British system. Um, just it's, it's spectacular. So it is also only about two years old, effectively brand new for sound systems. Um, the sound system starts exploding. Um, you have this... <laughs> that keeps happening. That's just like this deafening white noise feedback squeal. Um, and it was happening during the warm-up and everything, so they're kind of hoping that everything's going to be okay. And then once we got into worship, all of a sudden, yep, there you go. And they have to turn everything off. Uh, they can't really fix it. There's, like, periods where the speakers come back on and it goes off. So what happens then is that we're all on the floor and stuff, and the Chinese people start singing this song. It's Zon Mei Shu, Hallelujah. It's Shout for Joy, Hallelujah. And uh, it has these actions. So here we are on the floor going, Shout for Joy, Hallelujah. Shout for Joy, Hallelujah. For 25 minutes uh, without any musical accompaniment because every time, like, occasionally the speakers would come back on and the drums were going and you could kind of hear the drums and then you'd blow out and it would have to go down. But for 25 minutes, the body, the congregation carried the worship, which I truly believe would not have been possible if not for the breakthrough of the morning where we just established this is family and this is what we do. And there was one point then at the end of that session with all the exploding speakers and stuff, we went into this time of travail, actually, which was very quite a, quite a transition. And there was one part where something happened on stage that was not totally covered with some of the young people. But what I saw was the um, all these intercessors on the floor, specifically Chinese intercessors, as soon as this thing happened, they rushed the stage. And there they all are, all at the stage, just covering what's happening as all these young people are kind of like, oh, what do we do? What's going on? Just covering what's going on. And, uh, and then later that evening, I had the privilege to actually be part of sort of the, um, some of the leadership pulled aside some of the young people and had sort of a time of debrief and discernment where they just reiterated um, sort of 
just just like their covering and how and how the um, the parents, the mothers and fathers in the body were covering that. And uh, David Damien shared something that I thought was also very important because one of the things that I haven't said was in all of this family, there was also this intense spirit of rejection. The attack was rejection. You're not part of this. And I believe, like, even as I'm sharing this, talking about how we're part of the global church, some of you are struggling with that right now. It's like, well, I can't really be part of the global church in that way. You can and you have to be. In fact, the lie is that you can't be. The lie is that you're rejected. There were key leaders, and I don't mean leaders just in the young people. I mean leaders in the leadership group who were dealing with a spirit of rejection through this whole, this whole time. And it was just directly contrary to what the Lord was trying to do. Um, and one of the things that, because there was kind of this blow-up thingy that happened on stage, David Damien shared this story which really hit me, um, where he had heard a word from the Lord at something, I think it was a regional gathering or something like that, uh, and he had heard it from this event and misinterpreted what the Lord was saying. And he, he, the Lord confronted him about it sort of that evening, and he realized, oh no, like I didn't do what the Lord wanted me to do. I didn't do this correctly. I had my own spin on it. And he then publicly took responsibility for that and covered that and sort of repented publicly. And, you know, publicly they received his repentance. But David said, you know, he's a doctor, he's Egyptian, he's a perfectionist. So he was beating himself up about it. And I think, I guess this was a regional gathering that happened in Montreal. So on the flight back from Montreal to Vancouver, he's just on the plane, he's beating himself. How could I misinterpret what the Lord did? How could I have done that? How could I have led the whole congregation into this thing that to grieve the Holy Spirit and while he's on the plane the Lord spoke to him and said David if you keep punishing yourself I can't bring my correction So there's these like this feeling of rejection and the feeling of like I keep on doing the wrong thing or I'm doing the wrong thing when in reality uh, God just wants us to, to step out in faith, and he's going to cover, and he, God is the, the head of the family, and then the, the fathers and mothers in the body are going to cover, and the next level down is going to cover. And um, this was, this was, that was the thing that I really, really... There's a, a, a couple things I, I want to... Thanks yeah. for sharing. Okay, we only have a few minutes left, so we'll try and make this brief, but uh, part of what I wanted to try and do is bring application for, for us here. Uh, it's interesting that um, Curtis mentioned the spirit of rejection. The, uh, the challenge is coming into unity because um, if you've ever been a teenager, anybody here ever been a teenager? Let me see. Let me say that people over 30, put up your hand if you were a teenager. Okay, quite a few of you. That's great. Um, one of the things... Uh, too much sitting on, on a plane. <laughs> uh, one of the things that you grow out of as you mature is you grow out of the narrowness uh, in terms of the requirement for intimacy or relationship. Is that you realize that when you're a teenager, you have very narrow, you know, definitions of who is worthy to be your friend or to be in the group, or, you know, so there's all of these divisive elements that, you know, uh, criteria that if a certain person acts like this, or thinks like this, or says this, or, 
you know, they like the wrong movie, they like the wrong food, they wear the wrong thing, suddenly they're not my friend anymore. You know, they, or, or I, I am less disposed to be their friend, simply. It's lines of division, lines of division, lines of division. And what happens is that when you, when you as an adult, you start to overcome that, and you become more inclusive, and you have relationships that are beyond, you know, just the exact people that are exactly like me, and you start to diversify in your capacity to love people that are different, uh, God says, yeah, that's not enough. Is there's, there are people beyond the scope of this that you need to diversify with. And in this forum, what's happening is God is saying there are people who think differently, who act differently, have different cultures, different sounds, different colors that they identify with, different expressions in their culture that are equally a part of the family of God uh, that you must come to grips with. That, and and, and you, usually we, we have this sort of uh, attitude that because we've been a Christian nation, part of the Western you know, civilization, then the way we've done it, we take our culture and our faith and group it together and say this is how it should be. But it doesn't take long if you start to travel and you realize that you know, those values are not equally shared. Uh, and so, um, let, me, let me read this scripture. Because it's, it's uh, when, let me read it and then I'll, I'll share this idea. So it says, um, oh, here it is, verse 12, Ephesians 2. That in the time, I'm sorry, it's King James. I'll try and skip over some of the ye's and whatnot, but. <laughs> Wherefore, that ye, you, being in time past Gentiles in the flesh, who are called uncircumcision, by that which is called circumcision in the flesh made by hands, that at that time you were without Christ, being aliens from the commonwealth of Israel, and strangers from the covenants of promise, having no hope and without God in the world. But now Christ Jesus, um, who some, you who were sometimes far off are made near by the blood of Christ. For he is our peace, who has both one, who has made both one, he has made two one, and has broken down the middle wall of partition between us. Um, when I, we were looking at the diagrams of the temple, there was a place, there was a, in Solomon's temple, or maybe it was, uh, I can't remember which temple, maybe it was Herod's temple. Yeah, it was Herod's temple. There was a place where foreigners could come in, but only so far. And if you actually crossed over this line, you were killed. I mean, literally, they would kill you. You died on the spot if you stepped over that line. So in the Jewish culture and in the Jewish mindset, there was a very clear demarcation, a line of who is in and who is out. And uh, if you went past that line, and it, it created this exclusive sense that we got God and you don't. We are holy, you are heathen. And when the gospel came and Paul did what he did and the gospel started to go to the Gentiles, it was the first breaking of that cardinal Jewish rule that us only and nobody else. 
I mean, it, this in itself was a revolutionary thought. Suddenly, other people are included in the covenant. Well, you know, that exclusivism is not reserved only for the Jews. We all have that sense of tendency towards elitism or, you know, us more. You create a little club and, okay, girls aren't allowed in it. I got my tree fort and the girls aren't allowed. Well, you can because you got food. Okay, <laughs> you know. Uh, but I mean, it's, it's human fallen nature to be exclusive uh, and to keep people out and then to find reasons to justify those things. Well, one of those things that God is doing is he's creating a people who are inclusive. Okay, that doesn't mean we ignore differences. It doesn't mean we don't notice lacks of maturity or differences in revelation or different. But it, the idea is you are not excluded based on all the former criteria, based on what I like. You're not excluded based on the fact that we, you don't like the music I like. You're not excluded based on the fact that you're from a different country. You're not excluded because you have a funny accent. You're not excluded because you're handicapped in some way. You're not excluded. You're not excluded at all. And, and what God is trying to break in us is this middle wall partition, this thing that I can only relate to people along these lines. I can only have these connections. So what's happening, what Bethany really was testifying, what Curtis is mentioning, is that God is creating a capacity to be in union with people who are increasingly divergent from ourselves. Yes. Not divergent in the sense of, you know, the knowledge of God and agreeing about who God is, et cetera, et cetera, but on the things that are not central to the gospel. And, and that's being worked out in this global family, and it's trying on a way you couldn't imagine. Uh, but the value we're trying to pull in here is, is, can we do that? Can the lines of our communication and intimacy expand past the people who are most like me and start to diversify to the place where I could actually love anybody. I could actually walk with anybody. I could actually have anybody over at my house for supper. I don't have to keep having the same people over and over. And these are the these are my five friends. I got. I don't really need anymore. Everybody else is in the second category. Family, universal family, the family of God, cannot be established apart from a change of heart inside of us. And it, you know that change of heart was required by the Jews of the first generation. Paul had some significant resistance <laughs> when he tried to suggest that this is what God was doing. Uh, that's, that resistance is within us. And that's one of those things that God is overcoming in us. And so it might be being worked in your life along the lines of, you know, uh, God challenging you about expanding, you know, your definition of who are your favorite people, of who is worthy of your friendship, who you feel safe with, and on and on and on it goes. But that is a, a, a very core element of what is required for God to manifest his presence. I believe if the more we adjust and align in that area, that as we become inclusive, he will become inclusive for us. You know, he will actually start to give us more of his glory the more inclusive our hearts become here. And that's, you know, that's not something you can plot out in a, in a program or a doctrine. It is, it's either a reality increasingly in your heart or it's not. 
If that's not happening, we are not growing as Christians. That is the central most tenet of the Christian faith, is that, that loving capacity to open my heart and let other people in. And uh, I mean, we could talk a lot about that because a lot of us are shut down because of, we've been hurt, we've been, others have wounded us, but we need to become Wolverine. Yes. You, know, you know what Wolverine? Wolverine had an ability to get healed. What will enable you to open your life to people who are different and who may hurt you is not the fact that they are safe, but the fact that you have access to healing when they hurt you because they will hurt you. Uh, but the more you realize that you can be healed, the more you're willing to risk. And that creates community. If this city is going to be changed by love, it's not by this false version of I just accept you. No, it's, it begins with... I let you in, really in. And if we're not doing that as a body here in the midst of people who are mostly on the same page, how could we ever do it with people out there? That's the, that's the challenge that we have. So um, anyway, any quick last thoughts as we uh, run through? I know there's a lot of things, uh, other things that we gleaned along the way. Yeah. Um, the other thing that struck me and uh, was at the gatherings the um, willingness to sit and linger and wait for the expression of God in worship. Um, there was such uh, a challenge inside of me uh, and it was beautiful to watch how the worship team waited and waited and waited to almost the point of, okay, do something or move on or inside of me came out. Um, but it was beautiful to watch just a non-urgency in them to wait on God and to be okay with that and to wait for the next expression and to linger on this expression until there was another expression that he was planning to give and how, you know, that's challenged inside of me, but it wasn't challenged inside of them. They just sat and waited on God with no urgency to move to the next song, to the next expression, or to try to fill in the time in between this expression and the next expression. And that was really beautiful to be a part of. And, you know, she said it wasn't a challenge for them, but let me just say, <laughs> uh, that's not exactly true. <laughs> it is a challenge. It has been a challenge over the, all the years that the gatherings are, I mean, people are being stretched at each and every event. Offended, you know, uh, on so many levels, frustrated, uh, and at the end, just continue to grow because they keep coming back to the table. And they keep realizing, kind of, you know, like uh, Teresa just mentioned that, you know, I, why am I so anxious for this, you know, what is this thing coming up out of me, frustration, anxiety, wanting to control outcomes. Uh, so so um, while, while they didn't get up on stage and, you know, share particularly all the struggles they had, you know, uh, believe me, anytime you get two or more people <laughs> trying to do something together, you're going to get frustration, you're going to get schisms, you're going to get friction, you're going to get challenges. Uh, it's just that uh, they're making the right choices around those challenges.
Uh, and so, in the same manner, we, we have that option. Any uh, last yeah, I guess the last thing for me would be, um, one of the things that I saw, you know, practical, right? Because, I mean, here, okay, so it's me. So, what I want is something practical that we can bring back home as well and say, so is there something in here that, that affects what we would do or how we would do it or whatever? And the one thing that, that really hit was, uh, the level to which explanation was given at the next service about what happened at the last one. It was really neat. David got up at each time almost, I think almost each time, hey, and, and basically said, okay, so let's talk about what happened there. Let's, let's, let's kind of parse that through and see, because often, you know, these prophetic acts and things, you kind of look and you go, okay, well, that was, that was kind of cool, but what was really happening deeply and stuff? So. So, you know, a commitment I have in my heart is that, you know, as the Holy Spirit gives us explanations for things that have gone on, that we would bring them, you know, more, more specifically. Uh, so, you know, what happened there this morning? Okay, so let's talk about that. So that was, that was really good. And I love the way he explained it. He, he just said, you know, the disciples came to him and said, explain this parable to me. Yep. Um, and so to realize that there's levels of, of understanding. And even when he was explaining things, he says, we're going to explain it to the level of our understanding, recognizing that we don't have the full understanding either. So, uh, yeah, I really appreciated that too. So. Yeah. And uh, now let me just share both the opportunity to explain uh, in length and the opportunity to linger worship are predicated upon the fact that they're taking eight to ten hours a day to meet for five days in a row. Uh, last I saw, uh, that's not the opportunity we have before us. And so realize, you know, realistically within the time frames that we have, we are limited. Um, even so, we're, we're, we're trying to do that as, as we move along. Some of the explanations were necessary because um, Despite the fact that a good chunk of the people there understood what some of this was about, there was significant numbers of people who were there for the first time. So when the uh, Samoans were doing the haka, and uh, one particular occasion, a young girl, 18-year-old, came out and she did the haka, and uh, of course she does the full thing, and you know, it, it's a cultural New Zealand thing. Anyway. We had, you know, a couple of people come up to the discernment table with notes asking, telling us that that woman was demonized and she needs to be delivered and how dare we do this, what are we doing, blah, 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 blah. So um, because we're late, I can't even begin to explain how God is doing things in the cultures, but just let me just say this one thing. David shared this quite, quite clearly at one point because of this. He said, you know, there are some things within cultures that are demonic, okay? They were birthed out of demonic worship or expressions, manifestations of darkness. They cannot be redeemed. However, a lot of the uniqueness that is within the cultures and the peoples of the earth is God-ordained. That it is within the full kaleidoscope of restored cultures and peoples that the majesty, the fullness of the knowledge of God is being reflected. And so part of what this journey is, is discerning culture by culture, and that's happening within cultures, what is God and what is not, what can be redeemed and what cannot be redeemed, and then bringing that as an expression of our worship to God so that one day, from every tribe, from every language, from every culture, there will be worship 
in spirit and truth to the one true God. Amen. And, uh, you know, the challenges along the way are numerous, but, you know, we're just going to keep coming to the table. Amen? Amen. At least that's what Brian said. <laughs> Brian Serhoff, of course. Yes, of course. Thanks for that, Brian. High five. <laughs> All right. Love you guys. Uh, great morning. I hope you enjoyed some of the sharing up here. And uh, love on one another. We'll see you Wednesday night, if not before. Bless one another. And uh, have a great cold day. <laughs>